Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ashley Thomas. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Research on Open and Equitable Scholarship at MIT. She is interested in humans as a social species. She investigates what infants, toddlers, and children think about social relationships. She has studied how they think and feel about social hierarchy. And those are the topics we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Thomas, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Right. So, uh, first of all, what is naive sociology? Yeah. Um, so, naive sociology is the part of our cognition um, that helps us think about social relationships. So. Um, some people that when the term was first introduced um it was more referring to how people think about sort of in groups and out groups um, and identity so that's definitely part of it um uh, the part that i focus on is more about um relationships between people or the structure within a group so is this group hierarchical is this group more egalitarian what kind of cues do we use to figure those questions out um and um, once we sort of figure out what kind of relationship this is or what kind of group we're in, um, how do we use that information to infer or ex um, predict future behavior? Um, yeah, so that's naive sociology. Yeah, but is it innate or not? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, I think there are, so so I lean towards um, there being definitely parts of our cognition that's that's innate or endowed by um, uh, um, evolution um, that, that helps us with this. Um, there are different ways that you can interpret uh, different findings. So um, I'm sure we'll get into it more later, but uh, th there's a way in which that you, you could you could tell a story that's just about what's called naive psychology, um, which is a little bit different than sociology in that psychology is is more focused on the individual. So um, it allows us to to understand what you're thinking um, or or your desires or your beliefs. So whether we sort of are endowed with abilities to recognize different types of relationships, um, I think there's more work to do before we can say definitively that that's the case. It's interesting that you mentioned naive psychology because I was just about to ask you if naive sociology w would be tied in any way to things like core knowledge, like like is studied by people like David Geary, for example, where they talk about folk biology, folk psychology, folk physics and stuff like that. Does it have any relationship with that? Yeah, so um, the term naive sociology definitely points to the idea that it's a system of thought, um, that it's sort of, it's not just single beliefs, but it's a system that um, those beliefs are tied in with one another and they affect each other. Um, and that's how I think definitely adults think about social relationships. Um, I think we have sort of theories about about how relationships work and and what types of behaviors are supposed to happen in certain types of relationships and how you might change a relationship if you wanted to. Um, but to get to the question about whether it's innate um, and and sort of how it relates to these other theories, I think it's just again, it's I lean towards yes, but it's a good it's a good question. Um, uh, certainly, it seems like there's parts of it that um, there, there's some type of core knowledge that allows us to represent agents for sure. So agents are just things that have desires and goals. Um, so that seems pretty clear from the evidence. Uh, and then there's, there is work with fairly young infants, um, including my own work, showing that they do seem to, to, to also have a representation of how agents relate to one another. So to me, that's where you start getting into naive uh, sociology rather than just psychology. Um, but I'm sure that some people would, would say like, well, no, no, that's just showing that, you know, they have a belief that, or they have a desire or a preference for this person. And that's actually just part of naive psychology. So I, I just think that there's more empirical work to do um, to think about sort of the structure of these representations um, and whether they're really distinct from, from mm -hmm. 
uh, naive psychology. Fair enough. So later on, I mean, in a bit, really, I'm going to ask you about certain specific aspects of naive sociology that children, toddlers, and infants pay attention to. But are there some sort of set of aspects of how the society is structured or how the group is structured that uh, yeah. children pay attention to? Yeah. Um, so I, in my work, what I have found is that children are sensitive to um, groups that are structured uh, hierarchically versus um, uh, non-hierarchically. So uh, in those studies, what we uh, manipulate is who's making decisions. Um, and what we show them is one group where one person makes a decision and the other group where every member makes one decision. And then um, we ask them in two different ways, sort of, if they recognize that those two groups are structured differently. Um, and also if they use those structures to infer other types of behavior. So in this case, we asked them, uh, you know, given a group is uh, shares decision-making, do you think that a new member of the group will share more resources? And they do. Um, so they think that a new member of a hierarchical group will share fewer resources than a new member of a, um, I don't want to call it egalitarian because that's usually about resource sharing, but a non-hierarchical group, um, a participatory group, let's call it that. Uh, and um, yeah, so that seems the, the way that people make decisions seems to be one one thing that children pay attention to. Um, in terms of different types of relationships, um, there's evidence that they recognize um, relative rank. So. Uh, so work by Lottie Thompson, for example, um, showed that infants expect bigger guys to be deferred to in a conflict. Um, so those are really, that's a really common cue. Being bigger um, is a very common cue across species about who's going to um, have a higher um, social rank. Um, in my other work, I've, I've recently investigated infants' um, understanding and, and distinction between some cooperative relationships and then intimate or close um, relationships. So that seems to be important and it makes sense because your the family is the and um, caretakers are the social situation that infants are born into. And those types of environments tend to be made up of of these intimate relationships. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think that answers your question, right? Yeah, I think so. But do children go through stages in the development of how they think about social relationships? Yeah, again, I think this is a really good question. Um, and I just don't think we really have the data. Um, there's a little bit of data that suggests um, that priorities change. So in my work, for example, when I go from asking do infants have expectations about who will defer in a conflict, but to, to ask who they like in a conflict, I find that infants, um, 10 to 16 months, reach for the, the ones who defer, and toddlers reach for the winner, so the, the one who is deferred to. Um, and so um, I'm not sure what the difference is between those, like it's, it's it was unexpected when we found that finding with the infants. Um, but it could be that the priorities change basically, that that for an infant, they want to avoid high-ranking people who might be dangerous. And for a toddler, they might see high-ranking people as those who can provide resources or, or cultural knowledge, um, those types of things. So um, there's also a little bit of evidence, I believe, with uh, evaluations of prosociality in which um, there's like older kids, seven or eight year olds, really value pro-sociality, but there's sort of a dip in the middle between infants and these older kids in which they don't value it as much. But again, there's not really any definitive evidence. These are just kind of hints from, from the literature. Does this have anything to do with those kinds of studies that I think were, some of them were done by Elizabeth Spelke? I hope I'm not wrong here. I mean, those studies where there's a monitor and there's a triangle and a square, and sometimes the triangle helps the square, and so and then the the infant, I think it's an infant, has to decide which one of them they prefer, and they tend to prefer the one that helps instead of the one that hinders the progress of the square or whatever kind of shape it is. Does it have anything to do with it? 
Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was referring to. Um, so that work was done by Kylie Hamlin um, with uh, Karen Wynn and Paul Bloom. Um, although Liz uh, Spelke has been working on similar questions late lately, so mm -hmm. it's understandable that you got it confused. But in those studies, there's a protagonist and he's trying to get up the hill. And then another guy either comes in, helps him up the hill or pushes him back down the hill. Mm -hmm. And the question is, when you present the helper versus the hinder, who will infants choose? Um, and infants as young as six months reach for the helper more than the hinderer, um, suggesting that uh, they they evaluate the two the two characters differently. Mm -hmm. um, but the yeah, so the question is sort of as kids get older, do they continue to have those preferences? And the data is a bit mixed um, when you look at older older children. Um, until they're about seven or eight, and then children will say, like, yes, we definitely like people who are nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. But do we know how early in development children start evaluating others? Yeah, so um, that study that I just explained is with six months, six, six month olds. Um, there's another study with three month olds that they actually look more at the uh, helper than the hinderer. Yeah. Um, and there's work from Liz's lab by Lindsay Powell um, asking about imitators versus non-imitators. So um, people often ask, like, why do infant, like, infant researchers often use imitation, or at least maybe not often, but use imitation sometimes to to um, to cue affiliation, uh, which is a little counterintuitive for adults because like, if I started imitating you, it would be kind of annoying and rude. Um, but uh, there's some work with adults that if I sort of start subtly imitating you, then um, then it then it's a cue that I sort of like you and, and am affiliated with you. Um, and then obviously with adults, there's also situations like if we're in the same social group we might do a dance together that's like exactly the same, or we might do things that are the same sort of technique. Um, so uh, there's work by Lindsay Powell showing that four month olds also look longer at those who imitate a central character versus um, a guy who just makes a different noise in response to a central character. Uh, with the idea being that imitation is sort of a sign of prosociality because you're, you're at the very least, um, you know, paying attention to someone and their goals and then matching their own goals with with that person. Mm -hmm. So this might be again related to the question about the innateness or, or mm -hmm. the innateness of these aspects of how children think about evaluating others and social relationships or if it's acquired or developed in any way. But, but do you think that the way uh, children develop to think about social relationships might have a causal connection to how human societies are structured. I mean, the ways people think about this. Yeah, I mean, definitely. So um, I think one thing to point out about those studies I was just talking about is like, even though it's not super clear what's going on there, like it's not, um, people call those a evaluation, but um, it's definitely a distinction, but it's not, we don't know why a three-month-old looks longer at, at a helper, for example. Um, but in terms of how it relates to how society is structured, how, how people relate to each other, I think for sure. Um, I think our ability to form and maintain social relationships is key and in humans' ability to get all the stuff done that we're able to get done. Um, <laughs> I mean, like aside from the fact that um, your, the quality of your social relationships correlates with your mental well-being, um, like if you think about, you know, how the computer was was developed. I mean, certainly that involved a ton of coordination and um, the way that. Um, coordination happens is is through relationships. So I certainly think it's incredibly important for humans and um, and in fact is probably a driving factor in, in what makes us different from other species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just considering the possibility that perhaps, I mean, chil because children develop 
their psychology in a certain way to think about social relations, then that would translate into how adults do it and that would cause, let's say, or have some sort of causal power over how particular societies, perhaps in different ecological contexts, get structured and become more or less hierarchical and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, something I'm really interested in pursuing soon, um, but I don't have any work on yet, is actually how people think about social change. So um, I think in a really important part of our consequence of naive sociology or our ability to consciously think about the ways that our groups are structured is that then that allows us to imagine other ways our groups can be structured. Um, and for some people, that means that they work really hard to change their society or to change their community or their, you know, or their family, for example. Um, so this can be on a ton of different scales. And I'm really interested in sort of that cognitive process where you you recognize how how something is structured, you imagine how it could be different, and then you like the things that you do to to try to change it. Um, and it's uh, something that's been studied a lot in other fields like sociology, um, uh, particularly, but um, sort of less. Uh, it's been less studied on the individual level. Um, so it's something I'm super interested in. So and in that research. Will will you even consider questions or be interested in questions like, for example, people who are interested in changing how their society is structured, could that have something to do with their personality traits or just the fact that maybe the ecological conditions people live in changed in relation to a prior period and then that's where those ideas of change come from. I mean, are you interested in any way in those kinds of questions? Yeah, I mean, um, I hadn't thought about personality um, just because I, that's not something I study. Yeah. Um, I think both of those are a really interesting question. Like, both like, you know, what what kinds of people are the ones who who are sort of the the driving force behind social change um, is a great question, but then also, you know, how does the environment, um, you know, lead to these people uh, getting there? Um, yeah, or what kind of nudges can can outside people do to sort of help people imagine alternatives and and help people recognize the way that their their um, communities or groups are structured? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Yeah, because I was just considering the possibility that probably many times when people come up with new ideas, it's not really out of thin air, but it's because they are exposed to new, I don't know, material, social, political, economic conditions or something like that. And that's where their new ideas come from. It's not exactly by... Uh, I mean, standing there or sitting down, sitting, <laughs> thinking for a long period of time about it. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So um, I think it's a really, really interesting question. And there's a lot of really rich um, work that can, can, can be done there. Sure. So let's go back to your work then. So uh, how do infants, toddlers and children think about winners and losers? I mean, does that change over time, over development as well? Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about other people's work first, and then, mm -hmm. and then I answer the question about change. So I already mentioned Lottie Thompson's work, that they expect guys who are bigger to be deferred to in conflicts. Um, and the reason why we connect that to social hierarchy is that in a lot of species, um, a social hierarchy is based on dominance. So what that means is that um, uh, individuals defer to other individuals because they kind of know they're going to lose a fight. So, you know, if I'm kind of a little guy and a, and a really big guy and we both want a banana or something, the little guy is going to say, like, you have the banana. This fight's not going to be worth it for me because um, I'm going to lose anyways. And in the process, I'm going to get hurt. Um, so that's the reason why size is a cue of dominance, because if you're bigger, you tend to be stronger, tend to be better at, at, um, at fighting, basically. Um, other cues are uh, coalition size. So if, you, if you're individually not bigger, but you have, you know, 10 
10 guys versus three, um, intuitively, uh, sort of, we can, we can see that those 10 guys are going to win against the three guys, um, for the most part. Um, so coalition size is another one, um, size, strength, um, and both of those cues have been found in infants, uh, or, or sorry, I should say that it has been found that infants use both of those cues to uh, predict who's going to win in a conflict. So a guy from a bigger group or a bigger guy, they're surprised when when um, when that guy defers. Um, so it does seem like from a really young age, infants recognize these cues of dominance. Um, in older uh, toddlers, uh, there's a paper, again, not by me, um, where uh, they, diff they distinguish sort of bullies versus leaders. And the way they do that is like the bully sort of hits the his subordinates on the head um, and the leader kind of, I think he waves a wand or something and they, I don't know, they follow his directions. But the, the, the test variable there is who are those subordinates gonna listen to when they're not there? And what they find is that when the bully isn't there, the subordinates don't listen to them. Um, but when the leader's not there, they do. So really interesting finding. Um, and then in my work, what I have found, I was looking more at how infants and toddlers evaluate others. And what I found is that infants reach for the, um, if you if you make the two guys the same size and they have a conflict, which is just trying to get across the stage, uh, and one of them defers to the other one, they choose the, the sorry, the infants choose the one who defers. Uh, and the toddlers choose the winner. Uh, so it does seem like there's some kind of change that happens between infants and toddlers and how they think about uh, social rank and and those involved in the conflict. Um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I'm not, again, I'm not exactly sure what drives that change. Um, it might be just a change in priorities or it could be a different way that they're interpreting that conflict. Yeah, but in terms of what drives that change or might drive that change, just one question. Uh, have these studies been validated cross-culturally or is it mostly in American samples, for example? No, yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked it because one, one question is, especially with that toddler work, which diverged from the infants, it would be really interesting to see how toddlers in different cultures um, that are structured differently. These were all toddlers in, you know, from one museum in Southern California. Um, uh, um, it would be really interesting to see how toddlers in other cultures evaluate the winners. Mm -hmm. Yes, because infants, because yeah. if we find out that there's cross-cultural validation to those findings, then that might be another source of evidence pointing to innateness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would guess that um, we would find variation in the toddler findings such that um, just because a lot of times when you see a change in development, it means that, um, you know, the environment has affected um, the way that, that infants or children are, are thinking. Um, and so I would guess that we might find cross-cultural variation with the toddlers, um, but but um, consistency with the infants. And that would be really interesting. It would show that in a very short amount of time, culture is, is affecting how they're thinking about people in, in these conflicts. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to different kinds of leadership, like for example, you mentioned bullies, right? Uh, how do children deal with the ones in charge? Uh, I mean, you've already talked a little bit about it, but I was also trying to understand if they, for example, in certain contexts, rebel against them or not. Yeah, I love that question. Um, so in my work, what I found is that uh, when you change the conflict, so it's not someone who's getting deferred to, so there's not someone that's like bowing and moving out of the way, but the winner wins by knocking this guy out of the way, then toddlers choose the, the victim, the one who got knocked out of the way instead of the winner. Um, so it does seem like toddlers care about how people win when they're making these evaluations. And if you use force to win, then they no longer positively evaluate those guys. Um, I should say that, um, and, and it's not just about like 
this guy being strong and sort of scary or something because we did another study where this guy's trying to um, get like over a barrier and then another guy comes and knocks over the barrier and then they sort of both move over so um, and then they they go back to liking the the one who ended up helping this guy um, so it does seem like they they really do care about sort of rank but then also how how you achieve that rank um, and yeah interestingly the the data is a little bit fuzzier with older kids in terms of this distinction and evaluation so i think there's some room for research there about sort of how older kids are thinking about winners versus losers and high ranking versus low ranking guys and how how you're queuing that rank too um because a lot of different cues have been used so mm-hmm. yeah there, there's some work to be done there yeah, but are there is there any general set of traits that children tend to prefer in leaders? Yeah, um, so I'm not sure. Um, I do. I think it's a great question. Um, I have one paper asking sort of what kids expect. Like, given that somebody's a leader, do they expect prosociality? Do they expect protection? Um, and the data there is not super clean one way or the other. So they don't expect leaders to be randomly aggressive, um, which you might expect because in dominance hierarchies in other species, sometimes high ranking guys are just randomly aggressive and that shows others that like they will fight if need be, um, or that's the thought. Um, But human children do not expect leaders, at least the way that we cued it, to be randomly aggressive. Um, They do expect them to oust an intruder who did something antisocial. So if an intruder comes and pushes one of their subordinates down, they expect it to be the leader and not a subordinate to kick them out. Um, But they don't expect leaders to be generally pro-social. So um, if a subordinate falls down and we ask them, who do you think helped up the subordinate? they choose a subordinate, not the leader. Um, And this is in line with some other work that um, um, other folks have done um, where leader, they expect leaders to be indifferent to other people's needs. So these are all expectations. Um, But what children prefer in a leader, I think is a really good question. Um, And and one that to my knowledge hasn't directly been asked. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it'll be asked in the future. Yeah, uh, but since you studied children, do you have any idea if these findings translate into adult preferences and would that have anything to to tell us about what sort of leaders, perhaps in different contexts, would be more successful? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of work from the anthropology world. Um, I mean, the anthropology field, I don't know why I said world, um, across the world from anthropologists showing that in many contexts, um, humans are sort of sensitive to people getting too much power. So um, an example is um, uh, like, you know, in some cultures, you might have a lot of decision-making power because you're the best hunter um, and you bring back a lot of meat for the tribe. But if you don't share all of your meat um, or most of it, uh, then people think it's really bad and you, you'll you lose decision-making power. Um, so that's just an example. So it seems like um, humans are particularly sensitive to not letting people get it, like to, to making sure that one person doesn't get too much power, at least in sort of small scale um, groups. Uh, it's very unclear in when you think about like you know large societies uh, how people evaluate leaders um, and I'm trying to think I feel like there's some work that it depends on the context right so so if people feel sort of threatened then they want a leader who's like strong and and you know aggressive um, but if they don't then they want leaders who are sort of prosocial and um, have these other aspects that you would more connect with like prestige or things like that. Mm-hmm. What about in contexts of zero-sum conflict? The, do you know if that changes children's preferences? 
Yeah. So all the all the work that I was telling you about um, involved a zero sum conflict, or at least. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the them trying to cross the stage isn't super zero sum because like they could have done this, um, <laughs> uh, but the way we presented it is like they are sort of running into each other. Um, but in other studies, um, like by Olivier Mascaro, um, there's just one resource. Um, and the question is who's going to get that one resource? So that's a zero sum game because there's only one. Um, and yeah, so yeah, the right of way contest is, like supposed to be a zero-sum conflict, but you know, it might not. We don't know if toddlers and infants are really um, treating it that way. So, and in hierarchical contexts, how do children think about low-ranking and high-ranking individuals? Yeah, um, so I mentioned a little bit about the work um, in terms of their expectations of high and low-ranking individuals um, in terms of like, children expect leaders or high-ranking individuals to protect lower-ranking individuals, but they don't expect them to be just like pro-social and generous necessarily. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to think, there's some other work showing that children do have a preference uh, for, for um, high-ranking individuals, no matter sort of how they get their rank. So like whether it's from resources, having more resources, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think I'm just trying to think of all the work. There's there's lots of work showing like what cues children use to say who's in charge. So is it who gives orders? Is it who sets norms? Um, and younger children have an easier time when the sort of interaction benefits the the person who they say is in charge. So it's like, they both wanted to play a toy and Gorp said, it's my turn to play with the toy and got the toy. And then you ask them who's in charge. They they choose the one who got the toy. Um, but if you say, you know, there's one toy they both wanted to play, but Gorp said, Gorp made the decision, you can play with the toy. Then only older children think that the one who's who made the decision, but it benefited the, the other guy is the one who's in charge. If that makes sense. So mm -hmm. that's work by, um, uh, uh, goes. Mm -hmm. But in this case, are there changes uh, between infants, toddlers and older children when it comes to how they think about low and high ranking individuals? Yeah, I mean, like I said, um, in my work, I find a difference between infants and toddlers. Um, such that the infants seem to prefer the low ranking individuals, the ones who bow out and the toddlers seem to prefer the high ranking ones, the ones who are deferred to. Um, but in terms of there being further changes, uh, if you look at like four and five year olds, they tend to be sort of at chance when you ask them who they prefer. Um, and then I think if you ask older children, like seven or eight year olds, they tend to choose the, the one who defers. So they tend to choose low ranking individuals, but I think there's sort of a lot of work to be done there, teasing out what the cues are that you're using. Um, you know, once you are starting to test eight and nine-year-olds, there's they're in a social situation in an experiment, right? So if you ask me right now, who do you like high or low ranking individuals? Like I'll probably say low ranking individuals, like nicer people, depending on how you cue it. But that doesn't mean that all of my behavior is gonna match with that, right? Because like there's benefits to having affiliations with high ranking individuals. Um, so I do think that there's, once you start testing older kids, um, they become much more aware of the social situation that they're in and much more invested in saying the right thing or the thing that they they will impress sort of the, the experimenter. Mm -hmm. And how do infants interpret social interactions that involve their own caregivers? Yeah, great. So, um, so this work is stuff that um, I've just recently finished. And here we're moving away from hierarchy, though it's a good question about sort of how infants and children see their relationship with their parents, because there's obviously some hierarchical component to it. Um, but in this case, what we're asking is, um, given that the infant sees their own caregiver 
affiliate with someone, a new person that they've never interacted with, does the infant herself then infer a connection with that person? So you can imagine like an infant is out with their parent and their parent sees an old friend and says, oh my gosh, you know, so-and-so, it's so good to see you, see you and gives them a really warm hug. Does the infant then sort of infer that this person has some kind of social connection to me via um, my, my parent? Uh, and the way that we do that is we have parents make a video at home with their webcam and they just have like audio instructions. So there, it just says like, look to the left now and the parent will look to the left and it says, make this noise. And it would be like, whoop, whoop. And so they, they make the noise. And then we edit puppets into the video afterwards. And so what the infant sees is their own parent having this interaction with these puppets. Uh, and the parent imitates one puppet, but not the other puppet. They make a different noise than the other puppet. Um, and then we ask, when, when we were still doing in-person testing, we asked who the infants reached for. Um, and they tended to reach for the puppet who was imitated by their parent. But of course, the important thing is that it's their own parent. Um, so we also had what's called a yoked control condition. So that means that every infant saw one video of their own parent, and then they saw the video of another infant's parent too. So um, when, so they were in two conditions, and each parent's video was shown to their own infant and another infant. Uh, and when infants saw another parent imitate one puppet and not the other, they didn't reach for the imitated puppet. So uh, to some, they reach for people who are sort of affiliated with their, their parent, um, but they don't reach for people who are affiliated with, with a stranger, um, at least in this case. So. So is that research part of a broader research where maybe people are trying to understand how children uh, learn to evaluate social relationships through their parents? Yeah, um, so it's definitely the beginning of probably many studies that we plan to do um, that are sort of, it, it both is getting at how they learn about specific social relationships from their parents, but also about the structure like what the structure of these representations are in their heads, right? Because in order to the in order to make that inference, you have to sort of, or one way you could do it, I should say, is that I I represent a relationship. If I'm the baby, I represent a relationship with my parent, and then I represent a relationship between my parent and this new person, and infer this connection. Um, and so that really suggests that the way that they think about relationships could be sort of network-like, um, in that they they think about nodes and um, nodes at being people, and then lines connecting to those people, um, which is which is different than than other work that's been done um, in this area. So um, yeah, we have lots of questions like, you know, um, using, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that when we stopped doing the in-person research when we were, when COVID hit, um, we designed a new test stimuli, which um, is both of the puppets moving their mouths at the same time but only one voice is saying, if you were the baby, would say, hi, Ricardo, hi, hi, Ricardo, hi. Uh, and the question is, which puppet do they think that voice is coming from? Um, is it the one who was their parents' affiliate or was it the other puppet? Uh, and what we find is they look longer at the their parents' affiliate only when this voice is speaking their name in this friendly way. Um, and so this has brought up a lot of questions of sort of how infants might use names in these representations. So like things like, oh, if this person knows my name, then they must have a social connection to me. And then they might have a social connection connection to my parent. How they think about say, like their, you know, their other parent's name. Like, is it, do they expect that the affiliate of their parent will know the name of their other parent, for example. Um, so there's lots of questions we can ask there. Um, thinking about sort of how infants are mapping the social world that they're born into and whether they're they're actually doing this this hard work of mapping all these different relationships and how they fit in. Right. 
So uh, another question now, what is social intimacy and how do children across ages uh, think about it? Yeah, so um, social intimacy um, is uh, relationships that you feel like you're really close with someone. Um, we call them thick relationships. So they're relationships where you feel obligated, um, where you would be really sad if they died. So you would go into mourning if if that person died. Um, they come with specific moral, moral and social obligations, as I already said. Um, and you can also kind of think about it as kin. Um, and uh, when when I say kin, I don't mean genetic relatedness. I mean kin in the in the broad sense of the term um, that um, that could be people that are sort of like you know like family. Um, and the re the question that we were after is whether infants distinguish those types of relationships with other cooperative relationships. So. Um, you know, just from my life, I have people who I'm very close to, who I feel intimate with, um, but then I have other people who I really like and I work with, or I, you know, would go to a movie with, things like that, but I don't quite have that intimacy with. And we were wondering if infants distinguish between those two things, um, as well as children and toddlers. Um, and the way that we cued it is being willing to share saliva. So. Um, if you're willing to share saliva with someone, you probably feel pretty close to them. Um, so if you think about like two people eating off the same ice cream cone or something, if you saw that, you'd probably infer like they're related or they're very close or, you know, they're romantically involved depending on um, how old they were. Uh, and uh, yeah, so what we did, we used that cue. Um, and first what we did is we asked children um, you know, here is a child, they're eating an ice cream cone, this is the child's sister, and this is the child's friend. Who do you think, you know, she shared her ice cream cone with, which involves sharing saliva, and children were more likely to choose the family member than the friend. Um, and then what we also did is asked about food that you can split up, so like candies or um, grapes. And in that case, children chose equally, the friend equally, sorry, they chose equally between friends and family. So they don't, I mean, surprisingly, they don't actually expect sharing to occur more often between family than friends. Um, and that was actually a replication of a study from Annie Spokes, um, where she where she also found this sort of lack of difference. So uh, people were wondering sort of if children even understand the difference between family and friends. And, and our study shows that they do. It's just that, you know, you share with people that you like um, and you don't necessarily share more with your family. Um, but when, when the action is more intimate, then um, you do share more with family. Um, and then we also have work with infants and toddlers that I can talk about. Should I talk about those right now or do you want to? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been talking for a while. So um, the, the work that we did with infants and toddlers, we showed them um, uh, in one study, we have one puppet and two women. And in one interaction, somebody takes a bite of an orange and then feeds the puppet and then takes another bite. And in the other interaction, a different woman with the same puppet rolls a ball back and forth with the puppet. And then what we ask is given the puppet's upset, who do infants and toddlers expect to react to that that infant's distress? So the toddler, the puppet sort of shakes and cries and puts its head down. And then the two women look towards the puppet and we pause the video. And then we measure which person the infant or toddler looks at first. And they look first at the one who had shared food with the, the puppet, suggesting that they distinguish between those two perfectly pro-social and positive interactions. Um, but it's just that that food sharing seemed like a more intimate um, interaction than the ball sharing. Um, and then we wanted to know, is this just about food sharing or, you know, does this, um, is this really about saliva sharing? So uh, we showed uh, infants and toddlers this interaction with one person and two puppets. And she, with one puppet, she sticks her finger in her mouth and then sticks her finger in the puppet's mouth and then sticks her finger back in her mouth. So that's the saliva sharing intimate interaction. And the other one, she touches her forehead, touches the puppet's forehead, and then touches her own forehead. So it involves contact. Um, they're both kind of weird novel actions, but only one involves saliva sharing. 
And in this case, toddlers expected the puppet who had had that, what we call the mouth-to-mouth -mouth interaction, to respond to the woman's distress. Um, infants, the results are a little bit mixed, but so it does seem like from this work that this being a willingness to share saliva is a early cue about who's intimate and who's who and 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 thus who will respond to one another's distress. Yeah. So I would like to go now into some general questions about lay people's ideas about uh, development, developmental psychology and so on. So do we know if there's a relation between people's theories of intelligence and their beliefs about brain development? Oh, yeah. Um, so we, so I have a paper that asked that question. Um, so I was really interested in um, this idea that people have different theories of intelligence, um, that people can either think about it sort of as malleable or as fixed. Um, and what I found is that the more you think that intelligence is fixed, the more you think that sort of your brain is fixed or biologically um, uh, determined. Um, so it does seem like those, like the way that sort of you think about all of these things is theory-like in that it affects many different um, uh, areas, including your biological reasoning. Right, but 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 I mean the people either think it's malleable or fixed, right? I mean, or are there any other theories? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that the way that many people have talked about that literature is that like you're either someone who thinks about it as fixed or malleable. But I think everyone can sort of think about it both ways. Um, and in fact, there's some intervention studies showing that you can change the way that people think about this. Um, and it has some effects on like how hard you will work on a difficult problem, um, which makes sense. So like if you're, if at the moment you're thinking like, oh, I can't like, I'm just as smart as I can. And then you encounter a difficult problem. The causal reasoning that you'll engage in is like, oh, I'm just not smart enough to do this problem, so I'm just going to stop. But if you think like, oh, this problem will help me get smarter if I try hard to do it, then people will work harder on it. So, um, yeah, and in terms of like how I, that's just one dimension of sort of how people can think about intelligence and the brain. It's like how malleable it is. Um, I'm sure that there's lots of other sort of folk theories about like, there's a lot of stuff out there like, you know, you're a left brain or a right brain person or something like that. Um, that doesn't really have any scientific validity, but I think people do have this sense that there's, maybe that's more about people's folk theories of personality or something, but I do think people have lots of other ideas about intelligence, but in terms of that dimension of how much you can change it, it does seem like people sort of tend to fall on one end or the other. Mm -hmm. Does that translate into how people think about parenting and its effects? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I wonder, um, I believe that there is a paper about this that is asking sort of how parents talk to their children. Um, so depending on um, this, I'm not sure about, but if somebody does something good, you can either say, or two ways that you can praise them is saying like, you're so smart. Or you could say, wow, good work. You tried really hard on that. And there's a paper showing that um, the way that parents talk to their children affect those children's theory of intelligence. So if you say you're so smart over and over again to your kid, then they're gonna more likely think that, it's more likely that they're gonna think intelligence is fixed than if you say good work or nice effort. Um, and the thing that I'm not sure about is whether that correlates with parents' own theories of intelligence. So I'm not sure if it's true that if I'm a parent and I say you're so smart a lot, it means that I'm more likely to think the intelligence is fixed. So that I'm not sure about. Um, it's been, yeah, I haven't looked at that paper in a long time, but it's an interesting question for sure. Um, and I do think there's, there's some questions about, in general, people's naive theories about development and how those affect the way that they interact with babies and whether that matters. Um, because certainly um, there's many cultures in, um, that, that have different views about 
what babies are like and sort of what they can do and whether those different ideas actually affect babies is a is a question but like those babies all grow up to be perfectly functioning adults you know with healthy social relationships so it seems like um you know it's not super clear whether these different theories have um sort of well-being types of outcomes um but they might have outcomes in terms of like it being easier for that infant to learn about their own culture or something like that. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. 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 Uh, and why is it that parenting decisions are so easily moralized? Or I mean, is it yeah. that they are moralized when people have specific theories about development, like for example, it being more malleable? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I've never, I, um, I've never made the connection between those two papers that I've, that I wrote. Um, so in one, in one paper, we found that parenting decisions are super moralized, um, that like people make very strong moral judgments of people's parenting decisions, um, in particular when they decide to leave their children alone. And those, those, um, judgments are so strong that they affect their, their risk assessment to the actual child. Um, and why parenting decisions are so moralized, I think, I think you're right. I think it has to do with the fact that many people think that a child, like any problem that an adult has is the result of something that happened in their childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a prominent aspect, at least in, in my culture. Um, or sorry, a prominent way of thinking. And so it could be that the reason why people are so, make such strong moral judgments of parenting decisions is that they think that those decisions are gonna have this big in, impact on the child. Um, and that, you know, that child will end up being a, a part of your social group. And so it matters what that child turns out to be like. Um, yeah, I'm not sure though. It's a good question. It's a good question because I feel like sometimes the way that parenting decisions are moralized ends up me being more about punishing the parent than about caring for the child. Um, like if you look at sort of, uh, I used to have this like Facebook video that I found of someone shaming a parent who had left their child in a car. Um, so she like left her kid in a car, she ran in for a few minutes. It was not like super hot out. It was a very safe situation for the child. And this <coughs> person like had his camera out and he was like filming this woman and like confronting her and, and you know, him doing that made it so she was away from her kid longer, right? Than, than, than if he just would have said nothing. Um, and so to me, that's a case where that person was not actually concerned about the kid because if he was concerned about the kid, then he would have just waited by the car and made sure that the kid was safe until the parent came back. Um, but instead he really wanted to like punish and shame this woman. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, I think it's a really interesting question about why people feel so strongly about other people's parenting decisions. Mm -hmm. When it comes to parenting in modern industrialized societies, I mean, there's this idea a lot of lots of people have that parents nowadays are overprotective. Is that right? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, I do think that parents in terms of kids being alone, um, I think that people are very afraid of things that happen very, very rarely. So, um, in the study that we did, in one of the studies we asked, like, what do you think is going to happen to the kid? And most people said abduction, child abduction. Um, and it's a very rare occurrence. It's, it's very rare that a child will be abducted by a stranger. Um, most child abductions happen from people that you know, like while they're in the care of someone. Um, and so in that way, it does seem like people are overprotective in that it seems like there's many situations where children would be perfectly safe by themselves, um, but either the parents themselves don't feel comfortable with it or they're rightly afraid of being punished for it 
either by the law or by other people. Um, and so they don't. Um, I, I think in the state of Massachusetts, you have to be 14 or something before you're legally allowed to be. I, I'm not sure. I don't think that's quite the age, but you have to be very old before you're legally allowed to be alone. Um, and when you talk to to parents in this area, it's really frustrating because they think that their children are perfectly capable of being home by themselves, you know, doing their homework, being responsible, making food for themselves, but they ha they can't do it. They have to be there because they're afraid that um, legally they're going to be get into trouble. So I think in that case, um, yeah, certainly the law and often people's intuitions don't match with the the actual risk. Mm -hmm. So just one last topic question. Is there any parenting style that is superior to the others? Yeah, I don't think so. So I don't know that much about the parenting style literature. Um, I think the idea that there's distinct parenting styles is probably not right. Um, because to me, it just makes sense that parents are different depending on the situation. Um, so yeah, and, and I think that parenting is so different cross-culturally um, and that like kids in all of these different cultures end up perfectly fine. So I think it's very unlikely that there's one best way to parent. Um, though as a parent myself, um, I would love it if someone told me that this is the best way to parent and you should try to do this and that they were, you know, that they weren't just saying that because people do just say that, um, but that they actually had some sort of evidence because it is frustrating as a parent. You want to know like, what's the best thing I could be doing, but you just don't. So um, yeah, as a parent, I find it frustrating, but um, my read on the literature is that um, there is not one right way to parent and that the most important thing for children is, you know, having um, people around them who care about them and, and, um, are, are try, you know, trying their best um, and that the, the, the people around them that are caring for them have support. Well, and I don't, many different, many different flavors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you think about this idea, but could it possibly have also something to do with each specific child's personality? What kind of parenting would be the best? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's sort of an ecosystem, right? That um, that that parents are reacting often to how their child is, um, and so uh, that can be the other thing that's frustrating is like you don't know like what it, it's just very hard to in, often in the moment to make parenting decisions. Um, so I think that's it's definitely an ecosystem in which parents are are reacting to their children and children are reacting to their, their parents. Okay. So just before we finish, where can people find your work on the internet? Yeah. Uh, the best place to find my work on the internet is to go to my website, which, which is ashleyjthomas.com. Um, and you can find all of my manuscripts there. Um, even ones that aren't published yet. If you click on my CV, it has links to all of my papers. <laughs> so. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Thomas, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was really nice to meet you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, 
Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbo, Jorge Espinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Taffini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.